Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 11. I want to read to you a larger section than normal. We're going to read um, a few sort of moments that happened over the course of 24 hours um, in the life of Jesus in this. Remember, we've entered into the final week uh, before he is crucified. And uh, we've entered into that time when he's actually in Jerusalem. He's been traveling around uh, the regions all around the nation prior to that, visiting the villages, preaching in the open air, and being followed by people and teaching them for a few years now. But now he's in Jerusalem. Now he's arrived at his destination. He'd set his face to go there. He'd gone intentionally. He'd gone deliberately. He'd gone with the view to his coming death and his crucifixion that would take place within days. Now, I want to read from Mark 11, verse 12, of what happened. It says, On the following day when they came from Bethany, which is a village outside Jerusalem, it says, He was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Fig trees produce two types of figs, the, the premature early season figs, which are edible but are not so good, and they're usually there when the tree is in leaf, and then the full uh, delicious figs which come later in the season. It seems that Jesus was expecting those early figs, so the Hebrews called pagim, and they weren't there on this particular tree, and so he curses the tree. And from verse 15 it says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who, who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the, disciple, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We're going to be thinking about the anger of Jesus today, because over the course of this 24 hours, we see these expressions of anger. First of all, of course, in his reaction to the fig tree, which he seems to unfairly judge for not having figs when it's not in season, then entering the temple courts and the, the many uh, market stalls and the trades that were taking place there. He tips the tables over, he clears it, he prevents people from walking through the temple courts. And then, of course, when he's teaching his disciples on prayer, soon after that, 
He tells them, look, if you have faith, you can pull a mountain up and root it and throw it into the sea. And it's all, it all just reeks of this kind of destruction and, and frustration and anger, the whole story. And particularly the way he handles this fig tree. And the passage has been, therefore, the source of confusion for a lot of people over, over the centuries, actually. But just from some scholars of recent decades, Bertrand Russell who was a famous um, mathematician and atheist and philosopher in the last century. He described this moment of, of Jesus cursing the tree as a moment of vindictive fury and thought that it sullied the character of Jesus. Uh, a, a Christian scholar, T.W. Manson, said that it's a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. You know, he, He's saying he could have used his mir- miraculous power to... Um, to cause the tree to come into fruit. And what does he do instead? He curses it so that it withers and dies. And William Barclay, who is a Scottish theologian, he said that the story does not seem to be worthy of Jesus. There seems to be petulance in it. And certainly when you read it on the surface view of things, that word petulance seems to capture the attitude and the conduct of Jesus in these moments, if you're reading it uh, with that in mind. But I want to suggest that that's a very shallow way and a bad way, actually, of reading this story. I um, <clears throat> just on my way into this building this morning encountered um, a security man on the intercom who wouldn't let me into the building. Who seemed to be accusing me of lying, and we have all kinds of security procedures because it's lockdown, and wouldn't let me in. And I could feel the frustration growing inside me. I could feel the anger. I arrived into the room here and we needed to pray in order that I could actually uh, lead the service. And of course, that's more a reflection of my own weakness and inadequacy and inability to exercise self-control than what was just a situation of misunderstanding. And, and that, that is actually a sign of my sin. But when you're looking at Jesus, what you see here in him is not a lack of self-control. I mean, Mark tells us he's hungry. It's not the case that he's merely um, angry on account of his hunger. And I know a thing or two about that. And I've got two boys in the house who express with vehement anger when they're, when they're hungry. It wasn't this. It wasn't a lack of self-control. It wasn't an abusive form of anger that Jesus is expressing here. Here's what you have to understand. The tree, the temple, the mountain. Three different images that occur in this story. The encounter with the fruitless tree, the clearing of the temple, and then Jesus saying, teaching his disciples, if you have faith, you can uproot a mountain. All these things are actually connected, and there's a theological um, sort of foundational undercurrent that that's, that's, uh, needs to be understood that's taking place in this story. The fig tree is a symbol in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. So Jesus cursing this fig tree is much more than just an encounter with a tree that doesn't have fruit, it's a symbolic moment. The temple itself was the heart of the nation. In fact, if you read the Old Testament and all the stories that come prior to this point, you see so often that the fortunes of the people and the nation rise and fall along with their temple. When the favor of God is upon them, they have a tabernacle, the tent that was in the wilderness, and then the temple built by Solomon, and you see the the nation flourishing. And then on numerous occasions when the people are wandering away from God, you see the temple being looted and robbed by the surrounding nations and ultimately destroyed so that it has to be rebuilt. This is the third incarnation of the temple because of the sequence of destructions that had taken place by the opposing nations that surrounded them. 
And so the, the temple very much is the heart of the nation. When things are going well and they're with God, the temple was flourishing. And when things were going badly for them, the temple wasn't there. It's the heart of the nation. The fig tree is a symbol of the nation. The temple is the heart of the nation. The mountain. What's the mountain? Jesus is just outside Jerusalem at this point. And if you've read the Psalms, you know that the most common language for the city of Jerusalem is Mount Zion. And it's described in Psalm 48 as the, the joy of the whole earth, Mount Zion. It says in Psalm 48, too, uh, that this is his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. It's the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. The pride of the nation. So when Jesus is cursing the tree, clearing the temple, and speaking about the destruction of the mountain, these things are all connected. And we have to understand what's going on here. And we have to understand that this is a deeply symbolic moment taking place at the end of his ministry, at the end of his life on earth, before his crucifixion and resurrection is about to take place. It has the most powerful significance. It marks a turning point. And so the question I want us to wrestle with then is what, does, what is it that makes Jesus angry? This is a settled anger, a deliberate anger. And what we see when we're reading the Gospels is that the things you think should make Jesus angry are not the things that make him angry. Jesus is deeply opposed to sin. But when he encounters the sins and the failings of people, he doesn't typically meet them with anger. For example, in John chapter 8, you have the Pharisees bringing to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And he doesn't express anger toward that woman. He is tender with her in a way that, that, that teaches her the grace of God and tells her, go and sin no more. Similarly, when Peter betrays Jesus at the very end of, um, of their time together, just before Christ is crucified, and Peter denies him three times, Jesus later meets Peter after his resurrection, and he just tenderly asks him the question, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? He asks him three times. We don't see the anger of Jesus in those moments of human failing when you expect to see his anger. But we see it here. And the question that we need to wrestle with is, what is it then that makes Jesus angry? And the answer, I think, could be understood. And let me just give you a definition of what's going on here. I think that he's angry when religion dies, when religion becomes fruitless, and when as a result it hinders people from knowing God. Religion in its pure and truest form, is the greatest gift that we have in this world. In other words, the ability to know God, if we can think of it in those terms. But it's also the the most dangerous thing we have in this world because of the ways that it can die, that it can become distorted, that it can actually hinder the knowledge of God rather than help the knowledge of God. And when Jesus sees religion become twisted and corrupted and broken, that makes him angry. We actually only encounter him angry a couple of times And it's always in connection with this. His harshest words are always reserved for the religious elite. And for for this reason, I think, we can see what his priority is. Now, this has immense importance for us. It's important for us as a church. It's important for us corporately, if I can put it like that, as a body, being together. Because churches rise and fall in connection with the spiritual vitality within the community. Uh, It's very often the case that you see a whole body of people either 
growing in their love and zeal and passion for God together or descending into coldness and hardness and something like religious death together. And this is very true of churches all over the place. It's also important for you personally because even if, you know, whatever's happening in our church as a whole, right now you're separated from the body and your personal life, your individual spiritual life is becoming more important proportionally, I suppose. You're not so much sustained by being together with God's people. What is happening in your heart? Where is your spiritual life at? And I want to show you, therefore, what it is that makes Christ angry in this passage and what it is we need to be aware of in order, actually, that we can run in the opposite direction. There are a few, few angles that we can take on this that really all center around this verse. Verse 17, right in the middle of the passage, when Jesus preaches, teaches out loud to the people just after he's cleared the temple, he says to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Three things that come out of this. The first thing that makes Jesus angry is when there is no fear of God. He describes it as a den of robbers, the temple. What had the temple been given for? The temple was designed to be God's dwelling place upon the earth. The Jews never thought that God literally lived in the temple as though that could contain him. But they understood that his presence was made manifest in a peculiar and powerful way in that location. Initially in the tabernacle, the tent that they'd had with them in the wilderness. And then later in the bricks and mortar temple built by Solomon in Jerusalem. When Moses was leading the nation of Israel, he used to go into the tabernacle every day in order to encounter God. And there was the cloud that would descend upon that tent. And it says that when the cloud was there, descended on it, and Moses was communing with God, it says that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as when a man speaks to his friend. Much later when, centuries later actually, when the son of King David, King Solomon, builds the bricks and mortar temple in Jerusalem, what he does is he engages in a kind of worship service in which they dedicate that temple to God and God's presence is felt there on that day. It says when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is God's, what's called in the Hebrew, the Shekinah, the glory of God that's felt and that's manifest. And it's the same experience that Christians have had many times through the ages, sometimes together in gatherings and sometimes individually in encountering God when His Holy Spirit comes in an awe-inspiring presence and power. And the temple was meant to be the place where you could meet with God in that way. It was meant to be the place where his manifest presence was felt upon the earth. You read in the prophet Isaiah, very early on in the book of Isaiah, which is an extraordinary book which speaks about Jesus coming centuries before he came. But it begins with Isaiah's encounter with God in the temple. It says that in the year that Isaiah, the king, died, 
that he saw the Lord and the glory of God's robe filled the entire temple. And Isaiah falls on his face and says, woe is me, woe is me. This is what the temple was supposed to be. It was the place of encountering God. It was a place where God's holiness was felt in a way that could invoke fear and terror in the heart of the worshipper so that you are conscious of your sinfulness and of his magnificence and his transcendence and his ability to judge and his purity and his holiness and his otherness. And then you ask, well, what does it become? On this particular day when Jesus is walking through the temple courts, what does it become? And the answer is that it seems to have become a kind of industry. Jesus is walking through the largest part of the temple, an open plaza called the Court of the Gentiles. There were various sections to the temple, but this is the largest part, the Court of the Gentiles. And what he encounters that day is more like a concoction between the New York Stock Exchange Um, back when everything was on telephones and people waved pieces of paper around and the rowdiness and the noise of it, or like a Moroccan market. When my wife and I went to Morocco last year, um, I would describe walking through the markets as not a particularly relaxing experience. A guy put a snake around my neck without me even being aware he was there and then tried to charge me for the experience. Everywhere I go, I was being called Alibaba, which only bearded men will identify with if you've been to Morocco, but it's something about the beard. I I didn't understand what was going on. My wife was being greeted in Japanese. She's not Japanese. Everywhere we went, it was a bizarre experience, being harassed and and troubled by all these market men everywhere we went. And this is something like what we're encountering here in the court of the Gentiles, this bustling Middle Eastern market. But there's an element of corruption to what's taking place here. Every worshipper who comes to the temple has to pay a temple tax. But the coins that were in, 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 in uh, circulation all bore images of the Roman emperor. And you couldn't bring an image into the temple because of the commandment not to make an, an image and worship it. So they had to, first of all, exchange their money in the temple courts for these Tyrian coins, which had no images on them. And of course, in doing the exchange, there's a commission that's given to the money changers and You've all been in that situation in airports where they tried to charge you extortionate amounts to change your money into the new currency. This is something like what was happening there. They could bring their own animals for slaughter in the sacrificial system, but they, they, it, it, it would engender a risk, a risk that the priest would look at your animal and go, mm, I'm not so sure, there's a slight blemish on this animal, and therefore it would be rejected. So in order to be safe, you have to go there and buy one of their stamped and approved animals that had been um, set aside for the sacrifices. And of course, you'd be paying over the odds for one of these animals. And so what was happening to all this excess money that was being skimmed off the top? It was going into the pockets of the Sadducees and and the, the religious council, the Sanhedrin. And the whole thing had become this racket in which what was supposed to be a place of worship had become a place of corruption and become a place where worshippers and particularly the Gentile worshippers who were coming in and wanted to know God were being hindered from doing so. This was a massive breakdown in the very nature and heart of what the temple was supposed to be, that it was meant to be a place where God is encountered in his awe and majesty. And instead, the first thing you're meeting with on your way in, just as I was in my way into this building, is frustration feeling like you're being robbed, feeling like, like um, you're in no mood to worship. And I want to ask you, when do we see this today? 
And I think the answer is when worship becomes transactional, as opposed to something that is an end in itself. The worship of God is supposed to be an end in itself. We worship just because God is worthy of our worship. Worship is not about us in that sense. Worship is about encounter with the living God and enjoying him for who he is. And yet so often in Christian church, worship has become a transactional thing in which you enter with the mindset of what this does to you and and what it does for you. And so we've sunk into this way of thinking in the Western church in which the church has gradually become more and more of a consumer organization where every aspect of the way we set up our community and even our services has a mind to the consumer, which is a a byproduct of of a capitalist age, I would argue. And somewhere in the midst of that, God is forgotten. William Temple, who was an Anglican archbishop, he defined worship as something which is designed to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God and to devote the will to the purpose of God. In other words, it is all about God. It warmed my heart so much to glance at the screen just behind the camera here and see the worship coming from all of you as you are describing the nature of God. Worship is about Him. Never let us make it about us. Never let this become a transactional thing or a consumer thing or a thing devoid of awe. Jesus gets angry because he sees no fear of God in these men. He says that the temple has become a den of robbers. And woe to us if we ever allow our church services and our experiences as a community to be more about us than it is about God. Let me show you a second thing. Actually, before I move on, let me just add one more thought to this. What happens when God is not at the center? The answer is that your religion, your spirituality gets hollowed out. You have the shell, the appearance of something authentic. But really, it's hollow at the center. The temple had all the appearance of true worship. It was the right design to the building. They had the right procedures, the right sacrifices, the right people and the right offices and the right musicians and all the things were going on correctly. However, the Shekinah glory of God was not there in this particular incarnation of the temple, Herod's temple, that was just being built even at the time. It had become, I suppose, the nation's religion had become like a loveless marriage in which all the form of marriage is, is there, but there's no love at the heart. And this is what can happen to religion. You can have all the form of devotion. You can have the form of spirituality. But if God and the awe of God and the reverence of his holiness is not there at the center, then ultimately what we have is something that's become hollowed out. And I think I fear to say that I think this is what has happened to much of Western Christianity. Praise God that Christianity is blossoming and booming in other parts of the world and the center of gravity of where 
Christendom is has has gravitated to elsewhere, to to large portions of Africa and to South America and even China. And you think this is the work of God, that God is, is moving in other parts of the world where that cynicism hasn't settled in. But our heart is for our city, isn't it? Our heart is for our nation. And we long to see something like the revival of true religion being birthed in our nation. And what would that be? If that happens, what will that look like? It will look, first of all, I tell you, it will look, first of all, like awe at the holiness of God. His ability to judge us. His purity. His perfection. God, Jesus gets angry when there is no fear of God. Let me show you a second thing that happens here. Jesus gets angry when there is also no relationship with God. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? Now, here we're getting very close to the purpose for which the temple was given. It wasn't only meant to be a place for God's dwelling, but it was a place where you could encounter God in prayer. That was the very reason for which it was given to us and why God dwelt among people. Now, this brings us to the heart of one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. We affirm at the same time two seemingly opposing ideas. That on the one hand we believe in the awe and transcendence of a holy God who could strike us down because of our unworthiness and before whom we must fall and bow and be prostrate on our faces. But at the same time, the invitation of the scriptures is to know him in intimacy as a father to know Christ as a friend, to call him a brother, to call him your gentle high priest who loves you and cares for you. And these things are held together. There is no contradiction because we are made, it's made possible for us to know God in intimacy. And this was always true of the temple. Even though God's Shekinah glory was there so that you couldn't enter the Holy of Holies for fear of being struck dead, Nevertheless, the temple was given that it might be a place where people could encounter God. And certainly, I mentioned to you that when Solomon built the first uh, temple structure and he conducted this worship service in which they dedicated it to God and invited God to come and dwell in that place. The way in which Solomon speaks to God in this lengthy prayer, he opens it with this way and he says, Lord, that, that this would be He says to God that your eyes, he prays that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. He says, let this be a place where people can come and where if we've been wandering individually or as a nation, we can pray and you'll hear us. And then he lists examples of the kinds of prayers that might take place in this place when we've sinned against a neighbor we come here and pray you'll forgive us when israel are defeated before an enemy we'll come here and pray and you'll hear our cry when heaven is shut up so that there's no rain if there's famine in the land if there's disease if there's and he lists all these reasons why they might come and seek god and he says god listen to your people when they come to this place this house of prayer in order to seek you and approach you. And the promise of God answers Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7. He says, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven 
and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This was true for the entire nation. That this place was to be just such a place of prayer. But it was also true for the individual worshipper. One of the most touching stories we encounter in the Bible is that the story of Hannah, who was a barren woman. She couldn't bear children. We meet her at the beginning of the book 1 Samuel in the temple grounds, praying to God. And as she's praying, she vows a vow and says, Lord, if you give me a child, this child will be dedicated for your service. And God hears her prayer and she gives birth to a boy called Samuel who becomes one of the great prophets in Israel's history. Something has happened in the Jerusalem temple. This place that's meant to be a place of intimacy with God and of encountering Him and of communing with Him has become a place of religious performance. And friends, this is always the greatest danger for us spiritually. Always. Religious performance is easy. It's easy to fake it. It's easy to adopt the language and customs of the devout, to use the right phrasing. It's easy to appear to be a a devout person who loves God. It's easy to engage in the activities of worship. It's easy to, to even adopt a moralistic posture about what's happening in the world or the way you ought to live, but for this to just be religious performance. And you and I know that this kind of fakery is offensive. It's offensive to us. Think about this, how offensive it is even when you see it among your friends. Like, for example, when, you know, I'm no great fan of social media, but one of the things that particularly frustrates me is the experience you have where you see someone's public persona, which seems to bear no resemblance whatsoever to the person that you know in private. And you think, what is all this about? It's performance. And, and certainly all of life as it's been squeezed through the lens of social media, has become a performative act. All our lives are lived as performance these days. And it's a great tragedy that we can't be known so easily in an authentic and genuine way. What happens when this is true of your spiritual life? That's when religion has died. That's when spirituality has died. In Jesus' most famous sermon... In Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, he keeps addressing this fact. He keeps addressing this, the nature, the temptation there is for us to wear the garb of authentic spirituality, but for the heart to be devoid of the real thing. And he speaks in particular in relation to prayer. He says in Matthew 6, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. It's all a performance. He says, truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But he says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Something had happened, it seems, in the life of the nation that so much of their religious activity had become this performance-oriented act. 
and the heart of authentic spirituality was, was missing. And this is what Jesus criticizes this day. Is it not written, he says, that my house shall be called a house of prayer? You ask, what is it that Jesus wants? He doesn't want you to fake it. He doesn't want babbling prayers. He doesn't want ropes, memorized prayers. He doesn't want dutiful prayers, prayer that just happens because it's just what you ought to do. He wants intimacy with God. He wants that genuine relationship that the temple was supposed to allow and to enable. Praise God that through the gospel, through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we now have the opportunity to know God in that way. Remember I read to you this, these verses from John 4, where Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, Women, believe me that the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem, in other words, the Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, will you worship the Father? And he says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And he's speaking, of course, about the new realities that we would enter as the church on account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. When he renders the temple null and void, he creates the opportunity for us to know God in spirit and in truth so that our prayer lives can be to the Father through the access that the Son gives us and in the power of the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity engaged with you in being enabled to know God intimately and genuinely and authentically. And of course, that reality is now embodied in the church of Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also something you can enjoy personally at this time when we can't gather corporately. Praise God that we don't need to go to a temple in order to worship. Where no doubt the only option that would have been open to us if this was still active would be a socially distanced option without any contact or singing or anything of the kind. Praise God that you can go right into the throne room of God today wherever you are even in your own bedroom, and have as much intimacy and authentic knowledge of the the Father as any worshipper could have had going to the Jerusalem temple, except even more. Jesus is angry when he sees performance instead of a real relationship with God. And I want to urge you, do not let your spiritual life fall back into performance. How tempting it is to fake it. Let me show you a third aspect of what's going on here. And perhaps this is the beating heart of this account. That what Jesus gets angry about here is when there's no love for the outsider. And this is where I see this. He said, Is it not written that my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, for all the Gentiles, but you've made it a den of robbers? Now, This is the point of the greatest conflict between Jesus and his own people, particularly the religious authorities within Judaism at the time. The expectation of the people at the time for the coming of the Messiah would be that his ministry and work and rule would be primarily about purging the nation. Getting rid of foreigners, getting rid of the Gentiles, getting rid of aliens and getting rid of sinners so that the people could be separated. And there's an apocryphal book called the Psalms of Solomon, not written by the real Solomon, written many centuries later, that speaks about this. And I think it's the 17th of those Psalms. 
These are not part of scripture, but it speaks about the Messiah coming to get rid of the Gentiles and just purge and cleanse a nation. It's extreme religious exclusivism, extreme nationalism of the kind of anti-immigration kind that's rabidly dialed up and a kind of exclusive judgment of other peoples. This is where Jesus meets his great conflict with the powers that were dominant within the temple system. He enters the courts that day. And where is he? He's in the court of the Gentile, the largest part of the temple, the great temple, the great plaza, which is designed and built to enable the nations to come and meet God, which I think is why it's so big. And what he meets there is something which has all the devotion I suppose what the court of the Gentiles is to the temple worship is what winter wonderland is to the true meaning of Christmas. Now you go to winter wonderland and what do you feel? You feel robbed even the moment you walk in. You have to exchange your sterling cash for tokens that will work on rides that are overpriced and buy overpriced German sausages and mulled wine at four or five pounds for a tiny sip and you feel robbed and frustrated. None of this induces any sense of worship of the Lord Jesus Christ the celebration, the heart of Christmas. It's, it's miles apart from the thing. And this is something like what Jesus is encountering here on this day when he walks into the court of the Gentiles. He's offended by it. Because what was supposed to be a place where the nations surrounding Israel, the, all the nations of the world could come and they could be, meet the living God, Yahweh, the true God, the I am that I am. Instead, what are they going to meet with? They're going to meet with something that will radically distort their vision of what true religion is. This is where, as opposed to that so-called Psalm of Solomon, which speaks of the Messiah coming to clear everything out, get rid of the Gentiles, Jesus instead quotes from Isaiah 56. This is a passage that speaks about the ministry of the coming Messiah. And it highlights how he would come for the sake of the foreigner, for the sake of the eunuch. In other words, the person who was looked down upon because they weren't, they weren't fruitful, couldn't have children. And I want to read to you just some of the surrounding verses around this quote that Jesus pulls out. In Isaiah 56, verse 6, it says, And the foreigners, the foreigners, the nations, the Gentiles, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, no, it was devout Gentiles, non-Jews. It says, these I will bring to my holy mountain, Zion, the temple mount, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others To him, besides those already gathered. You hear that last verse, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. This is the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ encapsulated for us in prophecy. That his purpose was to get to the heart of worship within the nation, reform it and transform it so that all the nations will come and and come to know who God is in truth. And it's for this reason, of course, 
that Christ is killed by the end of the week. And it's for this reason that the Christian faith meets a kind of wide junction in the road with its mother, Judaism. And there is a, there is a separation where all the early Christians are, of course, Jewish. But this is the point of disagreement. They understand that the knowledge of God is for all the world. And they, separate them. they are separated, therefore, from this whole system in the temple. Now, I want to say to you, friends, that as Christians, the importance of this cannot be overstated. The mindset of exclusivism that Jesus challenges here, the ethnocentrism, is built on the logic of superiority, the pride of the heart that thinks that we're better or we're different and that others are outsiders. It's built on the logic of superiority. In fact, wherever you see exclusivism, you see the logic of superiority at work. And sometimes it's necessary. For example, in a boardroom, or you have the directors of a company, of course, that's an exclusive gathering because these are men and women who have, who have proven themselves, their wisdom and their ability and their hard work to be allowed to sit in that room. And we see this everywhere in the world, but we also see it in, a, in, in its poisonous and toxic variants. We saw it in the men's clubs that were prominent in London. I, feel, I believe that there's still one or two left, but they used to be much more common. And what was the exclusivism of a men's club? It was the exclusivism that was really built upon a disparagement of women, I suppose. Or you think about racial segregation brought to our attention in fresh ways in recent days. And the fact that this racial segregation has been and still is enshrined in law in parts of the world. You go to Malaysia and there is, there is, uh, there is legally enshrined racism. You, if you went to America um, 80 years ago, or, or less, 60 years ago, you would have encountered the shocking reality of segregation. And even more recently, if you'd been in apartheid South Africa. And of course, this is not unusual. All over the world, we see this kind of racial segregation taking place. And what's it built on? It's built on the logic of superiority, where one ethnic group believes themselves to be in some way better. We see it even, the logic of superiority, even in friendship groups, don't we? Now, I have no problem with the idea of having close friends, of course not. But how easy it is for that to tip into an exclusivism which is based on superiority. You see it in the playground, don't you? Where others are not part of this group because they don't dress right, or they don't have the right sense of humor, or the right charisma, or the right personality. And no doubt most of us have been at the sharp end of that and felt the sting of that at one or two points in our lives where you felt like an outsider. And this is something like what was going on in the temple precincts. The place that was supposed to be a place of welcome for the nations had become a place where they were, it was clearly communicated, you are not welcome and you cannot know God in truth. And this ethnic centrism, this, 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 this exclusivism that had become dominant within Judaism was built partly on an ethnic identity as a chosen people, partly on a moral identity as those who are separated from the nations, different from them, and partly on the history of oppression, actually, that they had 
they had forged this separationist distinction from the other nations because they so often suffered at the hands of the other nations. So rather than, in this instance, them being the oppressors, they had actually been the oppressed and as a result had segregated themselves and cloistered themselves and, and, and grown to hate the surrounding nations that had so often been the cause of their suffering and of their oppression. And you think, well, how on earth do you solve this? How on earth do you break down the hatreds that lie man between man? How on earth do you open up the doors for the knowledge of God to be accessible to all people? And I want you to understand, friends, this is why this is so important for us as Christians, that the gospel is the answer. The gospel begins with the understanding of the reason for which God allows you in to his kingdom, which is not based on anything in you, but is based purely on the free act of his grace. If you ask, why was he gracious to me? You cannot give an answer. If you can give an answer, then you can find merit in yourself. Is it because you're better looking than someone or because you're more moral than someone or because you were um, from some superior family or something like that? As soon as you give an answer, you've undone the power of grace. Grace doesn't work that way. Grace is grace because it's a free gift of God's love. And what the Jews had not understood at this particular moment in their history was that this had always been true of them. They'd always been invited in because of the grace of God not because they were special or better. Deuteronomy 7, it makes this clear. It says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the, on the face of the earth. It says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath. In other words, it asks the question, why is God loving you? And the answer it gives is because God loves you. That's grace. Grace cannot be understood or explained. And the minute you explain it, you've undone its power. Grace is despite your unworthiness, your unloveliness, your, all the reasons why you ought to be an outsider and rejected. It's despite all of those things, God still sets his desire upon you and says, you are going to be mine. That is the nature of grace. And it has the power of completely undoing the logic of superiority. You can never stand before God or as part of his people and say, I'm here because I'm special in some way. Either because of your devout spirituality or because of your righteousness or because of some other thing that you offer to God. The minute that you try and stand on your own footing, you have distorted the gospel and undone and twisted and even turned upside down the reality of grace. Now when Christians understand this, it has the power of opening the doors of the church wide, wide open. It has the power of destroying any sense of superiority. Yes, we're separated from the world. Yes, we're called to be different. Yes, we're called to go against the tide in so many ways. But it's not based on the logic of superiority or of pride. It's based on the fact that God has called us by his grace. And the invitation is open to all come and be part of God's great family. I want to just offer you a final thought as we close. 
I think that this passage in Mark's Gospel, this destruction of the tree, the clearing of the temple, the picture of the mountain being overturned, and all the reasons why Jesus was angry with the form of religion that was absent of the fear of God, that didn't understand the relationship with God at the heart of things and wasn't open to the outsider because they didn't understand the grace of God. I think we're getting close to understanding what is the greatest danger always for our spirituality personally and as churches. It's always the danger that somehow what we believe about the gospel will be forgotten or distorted or lost and we'll slip back into these modes of thinking which happens to churches and it happens to individuals even though we ought to know better. How easily our faith becomes hollowed and with no fear of God. How easily it becomes loveless with no real relationship with God. And how easily it becomes apathetic towards other people and even exclusive and cloistered away from the nations or from the peoples who surround the church. Friends, our only hope for a revival of spirituality personally and as a church is always in the gospel. It's only in Christ that we can have a renewed fear of God, where we see Christ crucified on the cross, bloodied and battered because of our sin, and we understand just how holy God is. It's only in Christ that we can have a new and beautiful and intimate relationship with the Father, because we come into the throne room covered with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only in Christ and through Christ crucified that we can have all the pride of our hearts broken and destroyed and melted so that we no longer think of ourselves as better or think of our possessions as our own or think of ourselves as able to stand in judgment over others. But all of this is undone by the gospel when God says to you, I loved you because I loved you and not because you are worthy of my love. And then the gospel comes in and changes us and brings about in our hearts a sincere relationship with God and a sincere passion to win the nations for him. And this is what Christ was doing that day. I don't think the disciples necessarily understood what was happening. I imagine it took time and reflection after the crucifixion and after the resurrection of Jesus to really understand the significance of these moments. But here, this is the departure point. This is when Christianity was launched on a worldwide trajectory And this is why you, if you are not a Christian, are invited in. Christ made it clear this day that he was for the outsider, that he was for the broken, that he was for the person who thinks that they are not worthy to know God or to have a relationship with God. He made it clear that his intention was to open the doors wide and to restore fellowship with God, to rebuild the house of prayer so that all people could come to know God for themselves through the work that he would do for you upon the cross. Friend, I encourage you, take advantage of this day. Take advantage of this opportunity. Christ has made it possible for you to know God. Let's pray. Father God, we want to come to you. And we acknowledge and we're fearful of, or even in dread of, the danger, the temptation of slipping back into this kind of religiosity, the kind which Jesus expressed so much anger against. 
where we have all the form of devotion, all the form of religion, but not the beating heart, not the reality of God-centeredness, not a longing to know you intimately, not a longing to extend your love to the nations. God, do not let us be a church that in any way is allowed to slip back into this fake and fraudulent version of Christianity. And I grieve and we grieve, Lord, the fact that so much of Christianity in the West, at least, has become so distorted. How we see all the hallmarks of its brokenness. We see churches that are built on the logic of consumerism. We see racial segregation. We see performance. And God, what we need is a revival of true religion. We need the Holy Spirit to breathe upon us. We need you to come, Lord. praise you Jesus that you died and spilled your blood to make it possible for us to know the real thing to know the heart of God to know a holy God and I want to ask you Lord to let your holiness dwell near to us Inhabit our hearts, Lord. Come and live in us, Lord, in greater measure, we pray. I pray, Holy Spirit, fall now upon every worshipper engaging with us today. I pray the presence of God will be felt now, the authentic reality, the Shekinah glory of God, not the fake Christianity, which is dead and useless and destined to be burned. We want the real thing, Lord. We want you. We want you, Lord. We want our church to reflect the reality of your kingdom and of the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. That our church will be one example of a house of prayer. One example of a people devoted and dedicated to you who come, who ascend the hill of the Lord with pure hearts and long to know you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, revive us, we pray. Even though we face so many hindrances right now, we can't even be together. God, we're praying for the the sovereign work of God so that none of us could claim any credit. Everything's set against us right now, God. This is a time for you to display your glory and your ability and your might and your power. This is a time for you to show that you can conquer hearts and win souls and transform people by your grace. I ask for these things in Jesus' precious name. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.